there such thing as a biblical worldview on this disaster of a train derailment in Ohio? I will give you my shot at that. And I have some thoughts to get us ready for presidential politics this season. We'll do that more on this week's Corey Truax Show. And of course, I will not forget two out of three weeks to finish the show. We will finish the show this week with our chronological Bible reading as I get to get, make a short point about the book of Numbers that you would be starting on if you're reading through the Bible chronologically in 2023. Welcome to the Corey Act Show on His Radio Talk and wherever you find podcasts. A reminder that the His Radio Talk part of that is going away soon. The final Saturday in March will be the last time my show airs on these airwaves. And so make sure you follow along me. Uh, just look, excuse me, follow along with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax, or email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Several of you responded to my question on housing last week and whether we should allow big corporations to buy houses as it hurts regular people. We'll talk about that some today as well. But if I keep telling you about what we're going to talk about, we will never talk about any of it. One final note, I get to serve the... Awesome people of Beachwood Church. We meet, Beachwood Church does, on Sunday mornings at 1030 in Greenville. We'd love to have you any given Sunday morning. I'll be preaching this week talking about the crucifixion. We've been been going through the Gospel of Mark for years now. We're coming towards the end, and it just happens to be that we're following this week on the crucifixion, so that will, of course, be heavy. Uh, If you want to find those sermons, by the way, they're out on the podcast feed as well. I think this is... This is one of those things when you have something of a deadline for a show where if I had more time, I think I could crystallize what I'm about to share with you and put it on a whiteboard and come up with something very systematic and structured. Instead, I have the time that I have to do the show, and it's right now, and I've been stewing on these thoughts. There's been at least three threads I've been stewing on. I think they're interconnected, and they're, to me, all interesting and important. For all of us, not just me, they're important for all of us. And so I want to see if I can either tie them together or if they're in a knot, untie them so that we can hold them independently. So here's where here's what I've been stewing on. One, I would love for you to go listen to the sermon I put out on the podcast feed from Sunday. One of the application points from that sermon was about Jesus as statesman or Jesus as the king. And what it, mean, what it means that when Pilate asks him during his trial, are you a king, where he says, you say so. Because it's, in part, it's Jesus saying yes and no. Yes, I am a king, but not the kind that you think of. And no, I'm not the kind of king that does things like your kings do, just conquer over people. And so I am dwelling in that part of the sermon, but also in my mind, even with the extra pro- project that I've been doing with, with Cody Fields over from the Westminster Doxology podcast, over the last couple years, I, I'm trying to figure out what it means that I say that. That Jesus is king. He has a kingdom that is in rivalry, although it's not even a competition. It rivals Putin's Russia, and Biden's America, and Trudeau's Canada, and Merkel's not the Chancellor of Germany anymore, I forgot who is, uh, and the Elizabethan King uh, Britain. I guess she, she died recently as well. I don't keep up with world leaders like I used to. He rivals all of them, and he's king over all of them. That one day, every congressperson and parliamentary leader and governor and everyone with authority will either bow in 
praise to him or will bow, bow in obedience because he's above all things. I'm living into that, figuring out what it means. And one of the things I, I brought out during that sermon is from a scholar, that uh, just a non-Christian guy, Rodney Stark is his name, and he's just a, he asked a good question in history. He asked, how did Christianity get from 300 people, or excuse me, a few hundred people on a hillside to to a million and some odd people in 300 years. How on earth did it grow like that? How did did it become so powerful that it became the uh, the the official religion of the official state religion of the Roman Empire from nobody to empire religion in 300 years? How on earth did it do that? And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a second. But the the thought that's more in my head is the following. We say right now there's 2 billion Christians on the planet and a, a world population of 7 billion. Let's just say it's true. And I don't think it is. I think you know, we, we talk about 7 billion and we're including just everyone who calls themselves a Christian, including a big swath of Western Europe and Latin America who just, they grow up Catholic and so they're just Catholic forever. It's not a doctrinal thing. It's not a relationship with Jesus thing. It's just part of their culture. But fine, cool. Let's just say 2 billion. Well, if we we believe in King Jesus, it's starting to really occur to me, that's not enough. There's not enough people that know he's king. They're not following after this benevolent, incredible king who is coming back. But we need to make more. And so I ask, I mean, we were at 300 people and we became millions in 300 years. Well, in 300 years, how do I go from 2 billion to 4 billion to 6 billion to the entire world? How do we get there? And... I mean, the, there's a small chunk of my church folks who listen to the podcast, and they heard the sermon. So I'm sorry to you guys who have to hear some of this again, but vast majority of listenership is not at Beechwood. What what he what he found, what Rodney Stark, the historian, found was Christians served in radical ways. They modeled themselves after Jesus, who radically humbled himself to serve those that no one would want to serve, even on his last day of life, washing the feet of his disciples, indeed washing the feet of those who would betray him and deny him, just hours later. And so the the Christian church of antiquity was marked by taking care of kids that didn't belong to them. So that's, in the modern day, that would look like trying to stop abortion. It would, it would also mean adopting children and fostering children. And churches... When someone in your congregation does that, adopts or fosters, it's you coming alongside to help with whatever they need. Let that be a church effort when someone in your church fosters and adopts. And I'm talking financially. I'm talking with babysitting, emotional support, whatever it is. But we we grew by being, as one uh, person in history that didn't like us called it, he said we were promiscuous with our generosity. Consider how that word gets used in modern times, pr- promiscuity. We were not promiscuous in our sexual ethic. We were promiscuous in how we were giving. So we took care of kids that weren't ours. We took care of widows that didn't belong to us. Our generosity went across ethnic lines. And as the world saw this very unique servant heart, it grew. And if we're going to go from $2 billion to $4 billion to $6 billion to the ends of the earth, that's how we're going to do it. It's not going to be from lording over and, and passing laws. Eventually, let, let's say we do that. We serve compellingly and people come to Christ. That's then when you know these kingdoms of the earth, their powers unlocked to us. So that was one. How are we going to get to 7 billion Christians? 
well, I want to get to 7 billion Christians, and I think the biblical model is love your neighbor, work on your neighborhood. Uh, you, you get to 7 billion by working on your neighbor, whoever you are. That's, that's how we got from 300 to a million. People just worked on who, wherever they were. and saw Whatever problems they saw, they tried to solve them in the, in the people around them, sharing the gospel as they went. So that's one thread, getting the, getting the next 2 billion Christians. Next thread. Another point I made in that sermon was there are powerful forces arrayed against you, whoever you're listening to, whoever's listening to me right now, for you to freak out right now. We're coming into presidential season. There are now two declared candidates for the opposition party. The incumbent party president seems to be running for re-election and will not draw a primary opponent, at least that's how it seems, for now. And we're in South Carolina. Well, most of the listenership is in South Carolina. We're the first in the South primary, uh, except for one time in the last 60 years. Whoever wins the South Carolina primary ends up winning ends up winning the, uh, the, the the nomination. The only time that didn't happen was 2012 with Mitt Romney. So there are powerful people with super sophisticated algorithms, with, uh, with, with a product to sell that they call the news, but it's really an entertainment product. There's politicians that want your vote and your support and your donation. They're all motivated by primarily scaring you. Or, excuse me, they think they can motivate you by scaring you. And all those powerful forces will end up having you glued to your phone or to cable news, and your mind will end up being filled with, and even in quiet times, what's going on with an election or what's going on in the government. And I wanted to prepare the people of Beachwood. I want to prepare you. Don't let them do it to you. Don't let powerful forces say, your, your hope is in the, in the state, power is in the state, your safety is in the state, by the state, I just mean governments. Keep your mind there. Focus on that. Don't focus on your neighbor. Don't focus on your relationship with your God. Don't focus on your church. Don't focus on loving your spouse. Don't focus on your family. Listen, you got to focus on the state. That's where power is. If you're going to be safe, you got to have it there. They're all going to sell you fear. And I want to go ahead and settle for us. We're not going to do that. We're not going to be manipulated that way. Which got me to, I think, the core of that thread. So That second thread is... As, it's, as it kicks up, I would love for you to pledge to yourself. You're not going to let politics get to you like you did in 2015 and 16. I'm pledging myself that. It, guys, it made me miserable. It also made my show unpopular. Well, that's a, that's a byproduct. Whatever. I was miserable during the 2016 campaign, man. I don't want to do that again. So I, I'm pledging to myself. I'm going to vote in that primary. I'm going to do it quietly. I'm not going to be on social media arguing with strangers. That was miserable. I'm not going to let it do. T- I'm not going to let it do it to me, because it's it's not the central thing. And so, here's here's how I started to think about it. I let Barack Obama and Donald Trump affect my emotions a lot. And when I think about it now in some context, my life has been fine. I think about the Obama years. He really did dominate a lot of my anger. I was, an, I was angry. I thought about politics a lot. And when I did think about it, because I was so upset at his policy, his thinking, what he represented, I was a fairly angry person. But those years, 2009 to 2017, were the years in which I grew into a man. 
I bought a house and it depreciated in great to great value. I got a job and then switched jobs and got promoted several times. I was ordained into ministry. I I had idols rooted out of my heart. One of the greatest joys of my life, I saw two young boys now grow into men, and they are monsters of men, and I mean that in the best of ways. I, I love those two nephews of mine that I, I got to play that role for, that dad role. Well, one of the guys who got to play the dad role for them. Yeah, I was upset all the time, but in the background, my life was great. Now, that wasn't the case for all of all those, for, for everybody, right? Yeah, the Obama years also included slow economic growth, bad job market, at least 5 million people lost healthcare policies that they, that they liked. And so there are lots of stories people could tell. It said, well, no, he, he affected my life in a much more tangible way. But for the most part, for most of us, that's actually just not true. I, I let the fact that the IRS targeted conservative groups really anger me and dominate my, my emotions. I, I, I really let it affect me that, uh, pick a scandal, the Fast and Furious scandal was what it was. I, but my life wasn't affected. I, I was supposed fine. And I think some folks, I mean, I, once Donald Trump actually became president, I kind of tuned out, but think about some of the, the the reaction to the former president was mostly emotional. It wasn't practical. Yeah, he was claiming he had the most attended inauguration ever, and that was stupid. He was literally pulling out maps of hurricanes and just changing the changing the trajectory of hurricanes right in front of us, just with a marker. Yeah, it was insane. It's crazy. Yeah, he was on stage just weirdly throwing out toilet paper and paper towels to earthquake victims in Puerto Rico. Yeah, it was all weird. And in the background, it was a great job market, and my wages grew, and every, almost everyone's wages grew, and we were we were prosperous, and the world was largely peaceful. There wasn't a lot of war. That's no defense of the former president, by the way. I, I'm. It's no condemnation of Obama. It's just saying we let somebody, the, the foreground of the news, control our emotions, and in the background, you know what's happening? We're living our lives. We're going to work and loving our spouses and raising our kids. We are being good citizens and good church members. And so, you're about to be tempted with some regularity. Care deeply. The outcome of these elections is life and death. And I'm not saying they don't matter. They do matter. But your ultimate safety, your ultimate security, your ultimate prosperity, because that word doesn't mean what the Americas told you what it means, it is not in whatever happens in the government. And so you don't have to let them dominate you. And that leads me to the last string here. I started listening to a book, and I listened on YouTube to a lecture from this guy who kind of summarized the book. His name is Michael Malice. I'm, a, I'm something of a Michael Malice fan. He goes a little too far for me sometimes. A lot of conservative thinkers do. They just get mean or acerbic. He has a book out called White Pill. It's intrigued me because I get annoyed at people usually on the right. My, they're my people, and I love them. But they talk about you know getting red-pilled. That's from the Matrix. You know You can take the red pill and live in the real world, or you could take the blue pill and go back to sleep and live in the fake world that the robots have built for you. They talk about being red-pilled, and it usually just means uh, man dabbling in conspiracy theories. And he started talking about white, getting white-pilled. 
And white-pilled is just taking a pill of hope. Recognizing that the worlds in which, this is what the, the book's theme tends to be, the worlds in which totalitarianism happened, the, that those worlds don't exist anymore. Like, it, it really was a thing. I, I didn't know this, but I, I think I forgot this is a better way to say it. I forgot this was true. During the Clinton scandal, uh, the Clinton Lewinsky scandal of 1998, the going narrative in the media was that Monica Lewinsky was a uh, obsessed stalker teenager. They used that word stalker. He, he documented in the book. She was obsessed with the president. And the media, even though knowing it wasn't true, they were going to go with it because Clinton was on their side, and we would have never known if the internet doesn't come along and if Matt Drudge on the Drudge Report does not release the story about, uh, well, the entire affair and then, uh, uh, excuse me, the adultery. I hate using that term affair. It whitewashes everything. The adultery and then eventually the blue dress. We would have never known. The media was very much ready to not tell the story. It is sick. She's a stalker, teenager, you know, or not teenager, but girl in her early 20s is obsessed with Bill Clinton. And his point is to say to us, none of the things where totalitarianism worked, those just don't exist anymore because of the internet. And he he gives you other examples of totalitarian regimes in North Korea, China, that over here where where we are in the information age, at least in the Western world, they can't do it. So take the white pill. Be he hates the word optimistic in the book. Don't be optimistic. Be hopeful. Have hope that things can get better. And then work to that end. Don't live in fear. And so it's all those three things are, are one big thought string for me. How do I get from 2 billion to 7 billion Christians? I'm going to serve people. I'm not going to get obsessed with the goings-ons of government. And I'm going to be a person of hope that I can get to where I'm going. I don't know if I tied all three of those things together properly, but those are the three things I was most chewing on all day today as I was just getting my normal job done and all that. And as I sit down at the microphone, those are the concurrent thoughts. So let me just encourage you. Grow the kingdom by serving your spouse and serving others. In this presidential season, don't get obsessed with it. Vote, pay attention, all that. But we're, we're a hopeful people that knows whatever happens with that we're here growing a kingdom that cannot be defeated. When we return, we'll ask the question, is there such a thing as a biblical worldview on this train derailment in Ohio and the environmental disaster that followed? We'll do that and more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Whoopsie. There was a part of Sunday's sermon and some of those connecting tissue thoughts that I just shared with you that I left out that I think is instructive and and helpful. So I want to quickly do that before we move on to the rest of the show, including that Ohio train derailment story I want to get to. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. Find me, your host, Corey Truax, by looking for that weird name, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also reach the show at CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruackShow at gmail.com. As I was going through that one connective tissue of the week, that one string to pull on when it came to stuff I pulled from that sermon and how to build the kingdom, I saw 
the three examples of characters in the the Jesus's trial plot as as modern day people. And I, I'm not the only one. I actually didn't do this part in the sermon because I like to keep sermons to 40 to 45 minutes. If I added this part, it would have gone over that. But as I was studying other people's writings, listening to other people's sermons on this text of Jesus's trial before Pilate, there was a great deal of emphasis on how we reflect many other people in the story. And so I just want to go through those really quickly. One is Pilate. Pilate is is featured somewhat sympathetically in the Gospels as a guy who wants to do the right thing. He sees what the right thing to do is, but as the text says in the Gospel of Matthew, um, endeavoring or wishing, wishing to please the crowds, he gave Jesus over to be crucified. And so there was this example I want us all to recognize as we're trying to grow the kingdom and not the kingdom the kingdoms of this world that sometimes we'll be tempted to be Pilate and not do the right thing. Like we'll know what it is. We will know what the right thing is, but compromise it so as to win approval from the crowds. That is going to become poss- possibly possibly that's going to become harder in the future where you you saying what you you saying the truth kindly, we don't have to, never need to be a jerk about it, never need to be cantankerous or aggressive, but speaking for the truth in a social setting, in your family, at your school, where you work, about sexuality and transgenderism or pronouns, or for that matter, marriage. Yeah, it, it might take some courage to do that. There might be consequences to do it. And so one of the ways that we need to be different as we build the kingdom versus how the state builds its kingdom is say the hard thing even when it doesn't please the crowds. I'm talking to myself right here, maybe more than anybody, because I'm avoidant. I am, uh, my natural predilection is to keep the peace. I love the peace. And I I think I'm a good balance to those who don't care about the peace and all they care about is just just say the true thing and whatever the consequences, right? I think those people are largely miserable and they cause more damage than, they, they do more damage than good. We need each other. We need to balance each other out. Uh, but uh, there's one. Don't compromise saying the true thing just to please the crowds. The second, it was profound to me how much I saw Modern American culture, especially in social media, when you look at the crowds at Jesus' trial, they have no thoughts. They have no reasoning. They have their own their own interrogation, as it were, in the literature when they're asked, uh, do you want Jesus or Barabbas? They say, give us Barabbas. What do you want us to do with Jesus? I want you to crucify him. Why? What? He hasn't done anything wrong. And then they stop having answers. They just have rage. And that is quite the analogy for where we are. That string, by the way, connects back to me with not letting like presidential politics get to you as they kick back up. What the, what the religious leaders did with the crowds, whipping them up to call for Jesus' crucifixion, it might, it might not be the religious leaders, but there are a lot of powers trying to whip you up into saying things like, give us Barabbas and instead do away with the things of Jesus, give me the things of this world. And I'm just asking for us not to be manipulated that way. Uh, the, the crowds in those stories are unthinking. They're, they, they're not analytical. They're super emotional. That, that is the, um, 
the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age is emotionalism. And, the, and I can go too far in criticizing that because emotions are real. They're important. They are information. The God, God gave us emotions. We are emotional creatures. But we live in an age where emotions are the center of everything. If I deny how you feel or I do something to give you a negative feeling, then I have depersoned you because your feelings have a, have, uh, have, have a negative reaction to something I said or did. Uh, and we just we got to be balanced. We can't be overly emotional. We can't be overly analytical. But in, these, in the story of Jesus' trial before Pilate, it was over-emotionalism that got to them, and it, it just can't get to us. Okay, that's all I want to do to finish, to finish that loop of all the strings that have been coming together for me. Let's do this Ohio train derailment. As I continually live into this idea of Jesus is king right now, I continue to look at the news and stories around it differently. You've heard me wrestling through that on the show over these past years. You can find more of me and Cody Fields over at the Westminster Doxology Podcast. We started talking about that more in depth. But I, I started hearing the conversation about this train derailment in Ohio and started looking at it specifically through that lens of biblical worldview, Jesus is king, what is right here. So if you don't know the the quick the, the Excuse me. If you don't know the story, here are the quick details. A train from Norfolk Southern, I think they're called, uh, derails in a town that I'm going to call East Palestine, Ohio, despite the entire media pronouncing it East Palestine because that's what the people from there say. Uh, it's it's spelled Palestine, so I'm going to say it. Uh, East Palestine, and there were potentially toxic chemicals on that on that train. It was agreed upon between the two governors of Pennsylvania and Ohio. I think some federal government uh, consultation to have a bur- to burn those chemicals off. Uh, that led to some chemicals seeping into the ground. We found dead animals, fish coming up dead in the streams, uh, some potentially harmful air to breathe. Right now it seems the federal government saying it's it's safe, but maybe drink bottled water just in case. But it's an environmental disaster in a small town in Ohio. And you, you start getting the reactions from people. And I, I wonder which is the, the biblical one. We, we live in a blame game culture, and so uh, folks associated with me start to blame the obviously uh, unqualified Secretary of Transportation, uh, Pete, Buttig- Pete Buttigieg. There were folks on the, uh, not really my people either, but the folks that are just anti-left, not necessarily pro-right. Um, excuse me, that's the first group. The second group is, uh, tr- as always, Trump did it. Listen, I'm, I can't stand the guy, but... There's a, there's a knee-jerk reaction that's always, well, Trump did it. He had a, he, and by the way, there was a deregulation of brakes, of, of what brakes you have to use on trains. And it is, it is likely the case that if that regulation would have stayed in place, then these, the brakes would have been on this train that, to allow it to stop properly and not cause this kind of derailment. I, I think folks that criticize him kind of miss out on the fact that uh, this other guy's been president for two years. That's a lot of years. Uh, to implement a new regulation that was just recently uh, rescinded. In any event, I start thinking through, well, what should be? Because, of course, my my instinct is regulations don't fix things. Of course, it wasn't government regulation is the problem. But then you also ha- have the reality. Here's a powerful corporation that's doing a, a good thing. We need train lines. We need freight. We need chemicals and, and goods being shipped across the country. They didn't take enough precaution, and they've caused a lot of damage to a community. 
So in a in a Jesus is King world, what should happen? I'm I, I'm open to hearing something else, but I, I don't think it would be a preventative top-down regulation. I think it's the the company knowing what the consequences are if they ruin someone else's stuff. This actually goes, ironically, last week as we were going through parts of Leviticus in our chronological Bible reading. One of the obscure, odd laws I, I read was, if you dig a hole, you dig a well, you have to fill it in or cover it up, lest someone's animal falls in it. And if someone, if you don't do it, if you leave your the hole uncovered and an animal falls in it, well, you got to make it right. Well, to Norfolk Southern, you have a rail line. You have freight cars. You have potentially damaging chemicals on some of those cars. You are responsible for, let's say it, covering up those holes. You're responsible as you run your business to do it in safety and not to cause damage to other people. So to do that, it might cost you more money. You might need to put better brakes, that the ones that were deregulated, even though they were deregulated, you might need to use those. Because if you cause this kind of problem, it should hurt, and it needs to hurt. So the right thing, in my estimation, I think if we're running a Jesus is King, biblical-informed law, it says to every train company, if you operate in a way that harms other people, their property, and their lives, it is. it, it might be the case that we bankrupt you, that the right justice, the thing of justice is that every dime it requires to make it right in this town, you pay it. The feds aren't coming in behind you to pay it. Maybe you have an insurance company that you're paying premiums to and that insurance company pays it. That type of freedom, it's a consequence for actions, but everyone's still living in freedom. You know what it does? It makes people want to be more responsible. We'll, We'll take this to the financial realm. When... When there wasn't going to be a, a the idea of a bailout, you know, we, we bailed all the financial institutions out in 2008, 2009. When that wasn't the case, banks were more careful. They kept more of their deposits and didn't do as risk, they weren't as doing as risky things. They didn't get all the mortgage-backed securities. That ended up causing the crash in 2008 and 9. You can actually see some of that in some of the documentaries about the crash the the banks, actuaries who are telling them, you have risk. There's risk here in what you're doing with all these mortgage-backed securities. Either that bank would have an insurance policy or they would say out loud, we're too big to fail. That was the phrase that you, you probably remember getting bandied about in 2008. Some people, some banks like Bear Stearns or, uh, uh, I forgot the name of the other one that got the first bailout. Uh, something Stein, I don't remember. But Bear Stearns is another one. They say they're too big to fail. The government won't let us fail. The feder- the government through the Federal Reserve is going to pump money into us. We can't fail, and therefore, we can take big risks. And now we're, we're seeing them do it again. Why? Because there's no consequence to actions. Governments are coming in and, and saving them. So what's the better thing? The better thing, and I think, again, I can be corrected, the better thing, the more biblically informed law is, you have a bank. It's your responsibility to run that bank and to make decisions in that bank that don't hurt other people. And if they do, if your decisions cause mass damage, you will pay for it. And we're not bailing you out. Now, one more thought on this. 
So that's what I think should happen in East Palestine. Uh, this this company, uh, Norfolk Southern, needs to pay every dime, and if it bankrupts them, fine. That's the just thing. The better thing would not be to regulate them to prevent it. It's now it's now every other train company seeing. Oh, do you see what happened to Norfolk Southern? If it happened to them, we should better be careful. Let's put the best brakes, the best regulations. Let's do the best job we can because what happened to them, gigantic financial hit. I don't want it to happen to us. That was the logic even in the law in the Old Testament with some of the punishments. Some of the punishments we see in Old Testament law are hardcore, stuff that makes our stomach, at least me, makes my stomach churn. But the idea was making an example that everyone else would know. I I don't want that punishment to happen to me. I'm going to get my junk together. I'm going to live in accordance with the law so that I don't have to suffer what this person's getting. Now, Now that final thought. I'm noticing that in evangelicalism, we're starting to have this conversation much more openly, much more talk shows that I listen to regularly are starting to talk about what I've been talking about for a couple years. What do we do with the state? What What is the Christian's relationship to law, and what should we be pursuing? It's becoming a mainstream theological discussion right now. And as that's happening, I have seen some folks that I, I consider to be brothers and sisters, I think they're probably very immature, they're very worldly, or those outside of Christianity make fun of or act, I think they're feigning it and faking it, but act scared that these Christians are talking about you know, theocracy or something. And I just, I find it so disingenuous. I just want to give you one example. I almost wanted to play the clip for you, but it's too long. There is a senator from Washington State named, I think, Wyden. And he was on the Senate floor this week talking about an upcoming district court or circuit court case regarding an abortion policy that's soon to be decided. Um, I think it was about abortion pills being shipped over state lines. And he is anticipating, as I do, that this judge is going to say, you can't do that. That when Roe is overturned, the states have to have their own laws, and the federal government, using like commerce clause going across state lines, you can't do that. Every state gets to have its own enforced abortion laws in its borders, and other states can't affect that state by sending abortion pills across state lines. So he was saying he thinks that's going to happen. And then he says, and two abortion providers out there, those are the abortion pills, I want you to disobey that judge. It's important that we disobey that law. Abortion is so important. And hear that for one party in the United States, for one movement in the United States, it is the fundamental right. It's not safe, legal, and rare. It's the single most important thing you can access. He says, disobey the law. Because we know the better law. We know the higher law. The higher law is abortion for any reason at any time uh, available to everybody. And, and so I, I, I would think that you would, you would get a similar freak out from secular progressivism. They're, they're starting to freak out at us because we're saying, well, sometimes the government is wrong and you have to obey a higher law than the government is giving you. And they look at us and say, you guys are the- theocrats. But you guys do it all the time, including on the Senate floor, say, according to my religion, secular humanism, the most important thing is abortion. And if the law says you can't do it, do it anyway, because we're being called by a higher law to pursue the abortion. So I bring that up only as this. There's just an hypocrisy there, and we should not be coward 
by a culture that says, don't talk like that. Uh, don't talk about doing things for Christian reasons. We, I'm going to keep talking like that. I, I hope I can do it humbly and hear that. We don't want to do it aggressively. I think some people like it. They like to freak out people. They like to sound transgressive because, I don't know why, it gives them clicks or it gives them views or, I don't know, it's just exhilarating to them to make someone feel uncomfortable. I, I hope I can talk about it humbly, but I'm, I'm done beating around the bush. I'm just going to say it out loud. Yeah, we're pursuing higher law. I will obey lower law if I have to because God's law is higher. And you all believe that. You're even saying it out loud on the Senate floor because you have a different higher law. You're saying you'll disobey government as well. All right, I got to stop here. Our timing is really weird in this this show. I've not managed it all that well. When we come back, I want to talk about your response to the housing story I shared last week. And we'll do a couple other items, including our chronological Bible reading to finish up. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Cora Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts and right here on his radio talk. have about 13 minutes and four stories to get through. I think I can do them all. We'll find out how much of a broadcaster I am in these 13 minutes or so. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for my name, Corey Truax, and you can provide feedback there. Speaking of feedback, about a dozen of you gave me some feedback on my idea from last week. I talked about how there's a story in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that showed around 50,000 homes in the Atlanta metro area were owned by LLCs, owned by big corporations that owned multiple homes. That there were big corporations backed by big banks coming in and buying 20 houses at a time because housing is the, is the best investment right now, especially in Atlanta as it continues to grow. I don't know where they're going to put everybody. The same way I don't know how Greenville's gonna, where, where Greenville's going to put everybody as we continue to have more people move in. And I've talked about how uh, that priced a lot of first-time home homeowners out of the market and therefore doing away with the primary method of wealth generation in the American system. And so we asked, from a biblical worldview, is that okay? Should companies who have a lot, should they have to leave something for the rest of us? And it was a universal uh, that some of you expressed what I expressed, which is discomfort in the idea of regulation, but that, yeah, that makes sense. And I heard some, actually some hard stories. Let me, let me stop on that. You young bucks out there, I have a, I have a good chunk of listenership still in their 20s, mid-20s. I, first, let me, uh, let me be careful here. Some of you who are living with parents, you're married and living with parents, or in a situation where you're renting for very little from parents or grandparents, I heard some of those stories saying you know, we, we want to be homeowners, but it's ju- it's just not affordable where we live, and you seem to feel some shame around having to lean on family. Can I relieve that from you, please? I hope I've never said anything that makes you sound like you should grow up and get your own stuff. I hope I've never said something like that. I, I know the situation I walked into. I walked out into an economic crash, so it was hard to get a job, but I happened to find one and walked into low-cost ho- low low housing because... The upstate hadn't become what it came, what it is now, and uh, there was a crash in housing. So first, if you're not, if you haven't been able to buy a house yet, and some of you some of you expressed how you really wanted to, don't feel bad about that. But I am saying, uh, make it a make it a financial priority. Uh, g- give up 
give up vacations, give up uh, whatever frivolous spending you're doing and get to where you ever, you need to be to get to housing because I'm telling you it's an incredible investment. But I heard the stories and thought, yeah, this is wrong. For some extra margin on one giant corporation or bank's balance sheet, for some extra margin on those balance sheets, we are saying to young married couples in their 20s and early 30s, you're you're out. Maybe you can go out and buy a house in the middle of nowhere, an hour from where you work, an hour from where you go to church, and the center of where you want to be, but you're done because we're going to buy these and we're going to drive up the cost and we're going to sell them to uh, transplants. We're going to sell them to, tr- sell them to people that are moving from garbage areas that are falling apart. Uh, we just saw another uh, demonstration of that. New York, New Jersey, California, Illinois, the most moved away from places. People are cashing out of their overpriced real estate there and trying to bring all that money down here and they're buying it from big corporations. They're not buying it from the local homeowners here. So a lot of you agree with me. Actually, none of you disagree with me. And so we'll just start there. I I don't know how actually how to go about that, but I have some friends in the legislature and we should talk. Oh, you know what? Speaking of that, this is not one of my four things. Let me mention this real quick. I went to the doctor recently. I'm a huge fan of my doctor, Dr. Shane Purcell down in Anderson. I, I have insurance to my job and all that, but I, I love his system. His system is just reasonably priced medical care. We deal with no insurance. It's just all cash practice, and I dig it. It's worth me driving all the way down to Anderson to see him. So I went to, the, I went to him recently at the behest of my wife. I think wanted to know. I think she wanted the security to know she made a good investment. She just wanted me to get a physical, get blood work, and to see how I'm doing. And by the way, I'm super healthy. Thank the Lord. And when I was talking with him, I, I found something I didn't know about South Carolina law. Uh, what I learned with him in a conversation was that if you are wanting to start a medical practice, I think it's any kind, but certainly higher level medical practices. So like a surgery center or uh, specified medicine, I think uh, some types of op- stuff to do with eyes or any kind of specialization. You have to go before a board in South Carolina and get a certificate of need. You have to establish to this governmental board that your services are needed. And as I looked into this more deeply, I found of record that when this board meets and doctors are coming saying, we want to start this medical practice right here, you know who shows up? Bon Secours, Prisma, uh, AnMed, all the big medical conglomerates show up at these hearings and say, no, they don't need, we don't need them. We don't need the mom and pop, uh, the, the small doctor. We don't need the single practice. They are showing up in Columbia and muscling out doctors who just want to start a practice, special, uh, those with specialties that want to show up and just do their that one kind of one kind of surgery they're good at or that one specialization in that one area of medicine the giant medical conglomerates are showing up and saying no government don't let them have it and there is a bill going through the uh, legislature right now that is a that would either end or make easier the idea of getting a certificate of need and would make less powerful prisma bon Secours, and med the giant medical conglomerates so can i encourage you that's a that's a good deregulation that will be helpful to everybody. Uh, reach out to your house rep. It's easy to do. If you're in South Carolina, you can go to sc.statehouse.gov, sc.statehouse.gov. There's an easy little link there that says find your legislator. 
Click there, put in your address, you'll get their contact info. Uh, the same way that I want to be part of the let's end per- pornography access for uh, for kids, as I recently talked about that, um, I, I want to be part of the movement that makes basically internet pornography a thing of the past, makes it illegal. I, let's also do that one. That, that one also helps people. One of the reasons medical care costs so much is the constraint on supply. When there's too few goods, the price goes up because price is a mechanism of rationing. And so the people that need it the most will pay the most. And in medical care, often it's people who can pay get it. If we can get more doctors and more medicine out there, then we will have a more affordable market for getting medical care. So let me encourage that. Let's end certificate of need in South Carolina. That's really all your email would need to say, all your call needs to say. If there's an effort to end certificate of need for medical practice in South Carolina and you want to assign your support to that, I think it's a great idea. Uh, It's one that we need. Man, maybe we can only do one now. But that was an important one. I'm glad we did it. Uh, There's a lot of crazy people in Congress on the left and the right. They're absolutely insane. And when they're not mentally like unhinged, I think some of them are like mentally unhinged. They need to be getting mental care. Like uh, the word I'm looking for is uh, mental health care treatment. They, when, when, when that's not the case, they are deranged in their pseudo fame. I mean, I've heard uh, actually VH1's behind the music will just document this to you like for you like crazy. Fame does stuff to people. I think it's one of the reasons the Lord has not allowed this show to get bigger because it might do it to me. I'm probably susceptible to that, that when you people start knowing your name, I, I might have too much pride to handle it, and it drives people crazy. This is a long-standing truth. Uh, going back through all kinds of celebrities, again, there's entire documentaries, uh, a series of documentaries on this through VH1. I think celebrity becomes such a draw for some people uh, that it drives them crazy. I think one such person is Marjorie Taylor Greene. I know she's a whipping boy of the left, but she should she should also be someone that those of us who are conservative should should shun and, and say out loud, no, 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 she's outside the bounds. She's kind of crazy. And for her, I do think it's the fame. She got popular, lots of social media attention. If you don't know, she turned that social media attention into several extramarital adulterous relationships. Uh, she just went through a divorce recently. She's she she's got she's a she's a tr- problematic figure to say to say the least. And recently, she said uh, we needed a national divorce. So I don't know I don't know how that would work. Some parts of the country seceding from the other, but that were so fundamentally different. Now we just need to have a national divorce. Well, one let's leave the person out of it real quickly because I know I'm just saying she's crazy. But that's something I've said in the last few years. I wish we could be adult enough, mature enough, to bring up some ideas as solutions and have adult, mature conversations about them without the freak out. Because she, in all of her intellectual deficiency, she has put her finger on something that a lot of us have felt. That the country has irreconcilable differences. One of the things that makes a marriage work is what makes a, a country work. You have to have some fundamental things in common. And when you don't have those fundamental things in common, it's hard to justify why you're, why you're even married anymore. Now, in a Christian view of marriage, it doesn't, doesn't matter. You, but you wonder 
why are we even in a country together anymore if we don't have some fundamental things like a, a core belief in freedom of speech, a core belief in that the family is the center of the, of the nuclear family is the center of the, of the 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 structure of your society. If you don't have the fundamental agreement that uh, everyone should be able to practice their religion and their religion goes with them everywhere they go, that not everyone has to have the same religion, which is called secular humanism. When you don't have those fundamental things, why are you even a country anymore? So while she's crazy, and I don't know why she said it, I wish we could talk about that. And I, I don't think it's plausible, I don't think it's practical, and I don't think it's good. You know, this this worldview I've come to says things don't have to get worse. What I what I would prefer instead of a national divorce is it's like couples counseling. Like, well, let's just make it better. Let's work on the marriage. And that's one of the ways you work on a marriage is you f- remember the things you had in common and you, uh, the word I'm looking for is you exalt those things. You don't maximize the things that are dividing you. You maximize the things that once unified you. That's what we need from leadership, and certainly that's what we need uh, amongst each other. I just started reading a book called Truth Over Tribe. Um, I think the subtitle is uh, choosing, the, choosing the Lamb Instead of the Donkey or the Elephant, something like that. And they're giving me examples of people doing exactly that on a personal level, where it's not leadership, it's not big movements, but you, you recognize that here's this person across from me, we are in different tribes. We are in conflict. In uh, in, a, in a country scenario, there should be a divorce here. There should be nothing that uh, that we have in common. And so I'm going to go try to find it. I'm going to go try to start a relationship, a friendship, where we try to find something in common and lean into that. I think personally we're going to have to do that if we're going to have any success in holding this particular one political power together if you have any interest in that. We got to go. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.